Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. And welcome in to Downtown, the podcast, episode number 192. From the Zone Radio studios in Bangor, Maine, Rich Kimball here, along with Carrie Haskell. Downtown brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Two terrific conversations for you this week on the podcast. Later on, veteran actress Patrika Darbo will talk about some of her many career highlights and her return to the daytime drama, Days of Our Lives. (laughs) Up first, though, a great friend of our show and the podcast, the talented writer Josh Karp, who joins us on a pretty regular basis to talk about the entertainment world. This week, he focuses on the passing of legendary Hollywood director, actor, and film historian Peter Bogdanovich. We also talk a little bit about the death of comedian and actor Bob Saget as well. Here's Josh Karp on Downtown. Let's start because uh, you know a whole lot about the subject uh, with your book on Orson Welles' last movie. And, of course, uh, uh, putting together the documentary, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. Tell me a little bit about uh, your dealings with Peter Bogdanovich. So, yeah, you know, it was interesting. Peter was, uh, I worked on that book for probably four years, and it took me about two and a half to get Peter to actually agree to see me um, and talk to me. And he wasn't, it was funny, because he was always like, yeah, I'd love to. And then you'd never hear back from him. Um, Which, he's not the first person who's done that to me, you know, as as an interview subject. But I was like, maybe I'll never get to talk to him. But it was, yeah, it was very interesting. I saw him initially at what must have, you know, what what was not a great point for him. He was teaching at uh, North Carolina College of the Arts, down in Winston-Salem. And I went down to see him. And uh, he was very gracious, and he was he was living in like a loft that the school must you know have rented for visiting professors, and um, it was kind of this neat loft. And he was everything you know you'd expect Peter Bogdanovich to be. He had the ascot going, <laughs> he, you know, like I, I he had he had the big the big tinted glasses, um, and he was really you know very um, you know the thing that struck me about him was that for despite everything that had happened to him in Hollywood, which we'll get into, which was a lot, um, you know, he was, there was like almost this innocence about him. Um, you know, he just like, he really, he talked about Orson Welles, like, like he had just seen Orson the week before you could tell you know, how much uh, his relationship with Wells had meant to him. You know, he's he's a very sweet guy, and very, but very, like, you know, Hollywood does not churn out. when You you may come in innocent, but you don't get churned out too innocent. Right. Um, and Peter just had, he had this kind of weird innocence and love of film about him that I found really incredible. Um and then, you know, he was very, he was very helpful. Um, you know, his relationship with Wells was extremely complicated. Um, and Wells kind of turned on Peter. Um, 
somewhere in the late 70s, and they were somewhat estranged from each other until about 84, like the year before Earth died. Um, but Peter was, you know, he just, I don't know, you know, he, he was really, you know, he was, he was for real. He was exactly what, when you see him, you know, being interviewed, and he's, you know, always wearing the ascot and always, you know, you know, kind of decked out as Peter Bogdanovich. He was that, even though he was down there in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, teaching, you know, art students. So, um, but he, he was he was terrific. He was a terrific source, and he was very, um, very insightful about Wells and about films in general. Well, yeah, I mean, you talked to him a whole lot more than we did, but I, I remember reaching out uh, just on a whim, and weeks went by, I didn't hear anything, and then out of the blue, I get this email uh, understand you'd like to talk with Peter, uh, would tonight work? <laughs> I'm like, yes, right. yes, it would. Absolutely. And, and I thought, okay, this is great. I wonder what it will be like. My gosh, the man could not have been kinder and more generous. We talked to him for, geez, I think about you know, 40, 45 minutes, which is an eternity in radio. And I, and I thought, you know, we're a, we're a little station in Bangor, Maine. Peter Bogdanovich, does not have to be talking with us at all and, and certainly doesn't have to give us this much time and be as open and as giving as he was. I, I was just, I was so impressed with the man. Yeah, he really wasn't. He was really, there was this real, um, you know, a real earnestness about him that again, you don't kind of see, you know, you might see somebody who's really earnest going into Hollywood. You don't see somebody come out all that earnest. Um, but he, there was, yeah, he was very earnest, very, um, very, you know, just, yeah, very giving, very generous of his time. Um, you know, he was, uh, he didn't mind me, you know, I, you know, poking around at, you know, with some stuff that was not super comfortable for him. Um, and, uh, he, he directed me to, <laughs> to, uh, to his arc, the archive, um, of his correspondence at University of Indiana, and uh, in there I found it was fascinating because I I had no idea that existed, and I had been to Michigan where Orson Welles' correspondence was um, was being archived, and I got to see the other side of some of the correspondence I had seen in Michigan. <laughs> You know, and so, and it was just, uh, you know, which was just wild because it's like you were seeing, you know, you're getting one side of the conversation in Michigan and getting the other side of it in Livingston, Indiana. And, uh, you know, he, one of the things I, I recall very well was uh, him telling me about how he had been watching The Tonight Show um, at a time, I think, shortly after Wells had run out on Living With Him, which was a completely one of the all-time craziest episodes <laughs> in the history of, you know, certainly Orson Welles and, and Peter Bogdanovich's life. Right. Including uh, Welles nearly burning down the house, right? Right. And, and yeah, well, well, I mean, he was like the man who came to dinner, <laughs> you know, except he, he he stayed for more than a you know, couple weeks or whatever. Yeah, he almost burned down the house, and he also ate all the fudgesicles <laughs> and accused Sybil Shepherd of eating them. <laughs> Which is my absolute favorite thing is you know, he he went on a tirade running through the house saying who ate all the fudgesicles? And he was like Sybil, you know. <laughs> and it was very clear that Orson had eaten all the fudgesicles. Um, 
as one might expect. But uh, but Peter, um, he had watched the Tonight Show, and uh, Orson was hosting, I believe. Either Orson was hosting or Burt Reynolds was hosting. And um, they started talking about Peter and, and just were kind of viciously um, making fun of him. Mm. And uh, Peter sent, I think he sent a letter to Orson saying, you know, I guess I know, I, I've been wondering what you think about me, now I know. And Orson sent him back two letters. Um, and he said, you know, pick whichever one you want. And one of them was a lengthy, abject apology about how bad a friend he'd been and how it was inexcusable, you know, and that he betrayed Peter's trust. And then the other one just said, you deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, and he said, pick whichever one you like. <laughs> well, it's it's striking, too. There are some certain similarities there. Uh, both of them were were boy wonders, uh, great success early on, and then Hollywood seemed to, to turn their back on both of them along the way, and I'm I'm sure that wasn't lost on Peter. No, you know, I, it, it's funny. You know, there was a great quote from Peter at one point where he said something like, Orson was never as successful as I was, and I was never as good as Orson was. Hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, that that's true. Um, and, you know, Peter, I, I, Peter is like a, a, his life, um, you know, is like, it's one of those stories that, you know, you, I mean, you know, it's so hacking to say it, but I mean, you, you couldn't make it up. I mean, here's the guy who grew up obsessed with movies, kind of, you know, pushed his way into, you know, writing about movies wound up writing about movies for Esquire, used that opportunity to meet all of his heroes, you know, to meet John Ford, to meet John Wayne, to meet Howard Hawks, to meet all these people. And, and, and he lived on movies. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, he's mm. like literally all he did, you know, his whole life was, was about movies. And, um, and then, you know, wound up, getting to make movies, which I think everybody who writes about movies, whether they admit it or not, secretly would love to make movies. And, you know, makes, makes this, you know, kind of takes a job with Roger Corman, you know, gets to do more and more. The cheaper Roger Corman realizes it'll be to have Bogdanovich do more and more. And next thing you know, he makes three hit critically acclaimed movies in a row, you know, his first three real movies, you know, his first three studio movies out of the gate. And he falls in love with, you know, the, the beautiful blonde leading lady and, you know, leaves his wife. And it's just, you know, you couldn't make that up. And then, of course, there's just this epic fall from grace after that. Um, very Icarus-like <laughs> fall. You know, he... He kind of had it all. He had the big, beautiful house in Bel Air. He had Sybil Shepherd. He had all the success. And then everybody just couldn't wait for him to fail. And when he failed, they, you know, the whole town just piled on him. 
We're talking with Josh Carp here on Downtown. It, despite that, I, I still think some of his later movies were quite good. I I, I thought uh, St. Jack was a terrific movie with sure. an amazing performance from Ben Gazzara. Yes. I, I, if, and if, if I may digress, I, I recently rewatched Roadhouse. And <laughs> Ben Gazzara's performance in Roadhouse is the most underestimated aspect of Roadhouse. Right. He is fantastic as the bad guy. Just total scenery chewing, you know, uh, just unbelievable. But yeah, Ben Gazar is great in St. Jack. St. Jack is, you know, I think, I'm trying to remember, I think initially they had wanted like Nicholson or Warren Beatty to play that part. Um, and uh, and Peter really wanted to do it with Ben Gazzara, um, who, was, who was a terrific, terrific actor. Uh, but yeah, St. Jack is a, is a terrific movie. Uh, uh, Mask, obviously. Um, is a terrific movie. <laughs> he had a great line when we talked to him about Mask, and he, he couldn't stand working with Cher, and he said, you know, I had a lot of close-ups on her eyes because she had such soulful eyes, but as time went on, I realized it was really just self-pity. <laughs> I heard I heard an interview with him replayed the other day where he talked about Cher, and he said, you know, he said, what nobody will tell you is that Cher hates all men. <laughs> yeah, and he said, and he said similar stuff about the close-ups. He said, you know, everybody said, but God, she was great in mask. He said, that's because I shot all close-ups. She's great in close-ups. <laughs> he also told us, I found this fascinating, that uh, he was uh, he loved working with John Ritter, and he really wanted John Ritter uh, for the part that Timothy Bottoms got in Last Picture Show. Right, right. That is true. Yeah, he, yeah, he, 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 John Ritter was in, I think, was it They All Laughed? Um, right. You know, the movie Peter made with the, also with Ben Gazzara and um, Audrey Hepburn and, uh, and Dorothy Stratton. Um, yeah, no, he, uh, yeah, he loved John Ritter. Um, and, uh, and I think thought, you know, I think saw a talent in John Ritter that, you know, probably a lot of people didn't get to see, you know, in him as a performer because he got so pigeonholed doing, you know, the kind of stuff he, you know, he, he'd always, you know, he became famous for it. But, uh, yeah, no, he loved John Ritter. Um, and he was, you know, he's such a, I mean, he's very, you know, uh, smart director, very sure of himself, um, probably to the point of, his own self-destruction, I think, in a couple of cases. But, um, you know, we wa my wife and I watched uh, What's Up, Doc, the night he died. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, he had been offered the opportunity to make the getaway with Steve McQueen, and he was, and I think he, as I recall, he just was like, uh, no, I don't want to do that. You know, and Strayfend wanted to do a movie with him, and she wanted to do... Um, this movie called The Glimpse of Tiger, which became an Elliot Gould movie that never got finished. And uh, she um, and he, she wanted to do that, and he said, no, I want to do a screwball comedy with you. And, you know, I mean, and that movie is just so, you know, it, it's so far from the last picture show, and it's so great. Yeah. 
I mean, it's still so funny, um, you know, to watch to watch today. Just just Kenneth Mars <laughs> is enough to make that movie worth watching. That's one thing I realized. Is Kenneth, anytime Kenneth Mars shows up in a movie, you know it's at least worth having watched. Oh, absolutely. How important was it to him to, uh, to help uh, get Other Side of the Wind finally finished? It, you know, very important. He was really... Um, you know, uh, he was really dedicated to Orson. After, you know, I mean, I think throughout and and after Orson died, he really took the responsibility of trying to get Other Side of the Wind finished very seriously, and he worked on it for you know years and years and years, and and, and you know, he, and you know, he and Frank Marshall, um, you know, and uh, Joe McBride also. Um, you know, really put a lot into it. I mean, as the one thing I always think about, this is not really about Peter, but it's, you know, <laughs> all these people who want to see the movie finish, they go, why doesn't Frank Marshall just pay for it? <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, he's got plenty of money. And I just remember thinking, like, that's the reason Frank Marshall has plenty of money. Right. You know, like, <laughs> he's, he's, not, he's not doing things like, you know, you know, if you can't find funding to finish the other side of the wind, you know, then just putting your own money into it isn't necessarily the answer. But Peter really worked hard at it and was instrumental in, uh, you know, and ultimately helping guide the completion of the film, which, I mean, you know, you think about, uh, you know, how many years that went on for. Um, and it's just, it's, you know, it's unbelievable. You're talking, you know, almost 50 years. Um, and and for, for my money, his, he has one of the two really great performances in that film. Oh, yeah. He's, uh, he's terrific playing himself, um, but d- doing it in a way that was that really, I think, showed, um, showed a different side of him. You know, showed that kind of innocent side of him that really loved Orson Welles and really loved movies. Now, now, for my money, I'm curious to hear what you'll say. For my money, the other great performance is John Huston, basically as Orson Welles. Right. Absolutely. That, I, that is the other great performance. I mean, I, you know, I, I, the two of them, you know, I, what, what's interesting is, you know, they're both guys with such clearly defined personas. You know, I mean, Peter is, you know, kind of this great showbizy, you know, guy. And Houston is this, you know, larger-than-life figure. And he he gets them to do that. And then there's just this little slice of each of them that's under that surface that's vulnerable. And which, you know, I don't know about, you know, how much Peter's vulnerability was visible, but John Houston certainly was not in most, <laughs> most of his life. And, um, and he, and Orson got both of them to be in just vulnerable and little glimpses. And I think those are the things that really carry the movie. I think those are the things, the things I like most about the movie are their two performances. I want to uh, change subject for just a moment and and talk a little bit about Bob Saget, who passed away, of course, uh, last weekend at the age of sixty five. I, I was not a not a Full House fan, but I was respected his work, um, loved his stand up, 
But I, I think what I've been most impacted by over the last several days is the incredible outpouring of, of love for him. And boy, it sure seemed like he was about as nice a guy as there was in the entertainment business. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I again, I, I also was not a Full House fan. Um, I'd, I'd always uh, heard that he was, in, in doing stand-up, extremely blue. Um, and, you know, and, and completely opposite his Full House character. Um, and then, you know, obviously he was, he was great in uh, The Aristocrat. Um <laughs> Telling that joke, and uh, and he was, yeah. I mean, it, it's unbelievable. I mean, you know, he really. Um, you know, something I was doing an interview the other day, and somebody and I, we were talking about Paul Mazursky, um, and uh, and I had said how great, what a great interview he had been, and it's interesting, you know, how, you know, Bob Saget died, you know, fairly young, um, so that's. Notable, but you know, it's interesting, you know, because the outpourings over both Peter and Bob Saget, you know, as compared to Paul Mazursky, who was just kind of like, Yeah, Paul Mazursky died, that guy was a good filmmaker. Um, you know, but there was this real connection I think people in the comedy world had to Saget. Yeah. I mean, I saw Jimmy Kimmel like, you know, breaking down talking about him, and, right? Uh, you know, and, I, and I'm not super privy to, uh, you know, Bob Saget's personal life, but I do know that, you know, everybody I've ever spoken to who's spoken of him spoke of him very highly and as a very sweet, sweet guy. Josh Karp, uh, always great to have you on. Thanks so much, as always, for making a little time for us. We'll do it again before too long, I'm sure. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me, Rich. That's our friend Josh Karp, the author of Orson Welles' last movie. Also, the wonderful book, on National Lampoon, a futile and stupid gesture. Josh Karp here on Downtown. A quick break for a word from Cross Insurance. And when we come back, actress Patrika Darbo on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. In college, I knew that meant uh, it was time to get ready for school and uh, get up and go to class. There, <laughs> days of our lives still going strong after all these years. Our next guest returns to the program in a very, very familiar role, but she's had quite a career, both television and film. We had a blast talking with actress Patrika Darbo on Downtown. Patrika, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, let's let's talk about the exciting news first. Back to days of our lives. Uh, what what prompted that? You know what? I'm really not sure. Um, the uh, Ron decided he's our executive producer. I guess decided he wanted to do a, a different kind of story. And trust me, this is going to be a different kind of story. So please tune in. And I start airing next Friday. Fantastic. Or this Friday. Now, can you because I haven't I have not watched a while. My schedule doesn't uh, 
doesn't allow it. But if they like every time I tune in, uh, some of the th- same things are still happening. Uh, Marlene has got troubles and those uh, those demiras are still causing problems. <laughs> and so are the fans. <laughs> you know what? I mean, we have so much fans. We're, I think we're going into the 57th year for Days of Our Lives right this moment. So that just shows you the longevity it's going on. Um, uh, it's loved by the fans. There are certain times that they don't like the certain stories. Um, some people are still mad at Kevin and I. That's Kevin Spear to see plays Craig. They're still mad at us because we got rid of Mike and Carrie. So <laughs> it's terrible. But, you know, our daughter's been on the show half of her life, really. I mean, she started in um, when she was 18 years old, and that was in 2000, I believe. So, you know, here we are in 22, and... So, and you can do the math, so to speak, but she, um, she's wonderful. And to see the growth from when she first started to now is amazing. And now she's a mom of her own, you know, with two kids of her own, two little boys who are absolutely adorable. Um, it's, it's, it's truly a family show, and that includes the fans. We, they, everyone gets involved. We had Kevin on the show about a, a year, year and a half ago. What a wonderful, sweet guy he is. He's wonderful. I listen. I he's my other husband, so to speak, um, and uh, he he helped me a great deal when I first came on the show because I'm not your typical soap opera diva. Um, I, I I always say I'm a size two, but my zero is on the other side, where, where <laughs> other ladies are on the front side. I'm on the back side. So um, I thought it was coming on to serve peanuts and beer, and then I ended up being the full-figured bitch goddess of daytime, um, which was given to me by Michael Logan of TV Guide. So uh, <laughs> it's been wonderful. But uh, I, Kevin had done soaps before, and uh, we bonded right away, and he sort of helped me with the ropes because I wasn't used to the scene stopping and then the scene picking up right away. I was, like, ready to do the whole thing at one time. So it's, um, it's been a growth and, and a lot of fun which opened doors to me to be on Bold and the Beautiful and Young and the Restless. So. Well, and those daytime dramas really put you on your mettle as an actor because uh, often you're, you're getting lines uh, maybe the night before. If you're lucky, you've got to do a lot of thinking on your feet and learning quickly and adjusting. And it doesn't get any easier as you get a little older. <laughs> Um, and right now, like everyone, we're facing COVID, and I have like five scripts that we've only shot part of because a couple of the actors have been in close contact with someone or they're a mem- family member uh, or a stage person, another actor that has caused them to not have COVID but to have to go into lockdown to make sure that they're, they're clear before they can work with anyone else. We are tested daily. So um, I have five scripts at home, four of which I've only shot part of, and those kind of words are, are leaking out of my brain as I'm trying <laughs> the new script that I will be shooting on Thursday. And, uh, and I'm also at Anthony's right this moment speaking with you because um, he's helping me with an 11-page audition that I have to have in by this afternoon. So it's crazy. Well, that's good. you got a lot going on, and, and you've done a lot just in the past couple of years. Uh, you were in the Netflix original film, Puppy Star Christmas. Now, I, I did not get to see Cradle Swapping on Lifetime, so I'm imagining what it's about. What What did I miss in Cradle Swapping? Well, that was where I kept telling my daughter, this baby does not look like either one of you. I'm <laughs> telling you, this, this baby just doesn't look like you. And why is it crying out? There's a problem. There's a problem. And of course, then they find out that somebody swapped the babies out. So 
Anyway, but you have to tune in. Thank you, Michael Pfeiffer, who was the director and um, gave me this great part to do. Well, you've done so many shows through the years. Uh, you had a great run on Step by Step, which was a wonderful series and a terrific ensemble cast. It was really wonderful. I have to say that uh, at the first year when Cody came on, Peggy Ray and I went, nah, this isn't going to be Grandma and Auntie at all. <laughs> These are going to be the kids. We're, we're going to not be long for this world. <laughs> so we finished the one for a full season, um, and I still keep in touch with some of the people, so it's so great. And you did a couple of episodes of Seinfeld. What was that experience like? <laughs> that was really so much fun. Um, I worked mainly with... Um, uh, my mind just went George, and uh, which was a terrific. And I had then I had done in the line of fire in between times. And um, Jerry just said, "Get see if Patrick is available to do the the sniffing the sniffing accountant." I think it was called uh, where he uh, Newman starts sniffing me <laughs> at, the, at the mailbox. So it, it was so much fun. Um, it really, it was a great experience to work with all of them. So. We're talking with Patrika Darbo. You mentioned In the Line of Fire, one of my favorite movies, terrific performances. And we've talked to a number of people about what it's like working with Clint Eastwood. And everybody says the same thing. He just, he gets it. He's an actor's director. He truly is. And, and when I did In the Line of Fire, I, my scenes were all with John. So I, I really didn't get to work with Clint Eastwood. But Clint, oddly enough, it wasn't the scene in the uh, When I Get Killed. It was our, our casual discussion in um, the bank that uh, Clint hired me for Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Um, and that's where I got to work with him as a, um, as a director. And at one point I said to him, well, okay, Mr. Eastwood, do you want me to? He said, no, honey, it ain't Mr. Eastwood, it's Clint, darling. So <laughs> it was a great experience. And uh, you've been on shows like Dexter, Desperate Housewives, uh, The Middle, The Big Bang Theory. Well, what's the life? Like uh, as a as a character actor, and I I use that as uh, as a great term because uh, my favorite people are character actors. You have such a unique such a unique assignment because you get to create new people. There are a lot of actors who essentially play versions of themselves in every role, but uh, to me, character actors get to dive deep and explore uh, other parts of their personality. It, you know, it is fun. I mean, there's we we all. I'm, I work with so many wonderful, great character actors, and I go up against brilliant character actors who um, sometimes they get the role, sometimes I get the role, or back and forth, back and forth. Um, and it, um, they've all become friends. Used to be where there would be only like four or five of us auditioning together. Now it's fifty to a hundred, so you don't get to meet as many um, or get to know as many as we did back in the eighties and nineties. I, I love the creativity of it. Um, we take parts of ourselves, and then there's things that we go, well, what wouldn't I do <laughs> instead of what would I do? <laughs> uh, so, uh, it's, you know, it, I'm very blessed. Now, what's the status of, uh, of auditioning these days? Are you still doing a, a lot of these uh, self-tapes and, and Zoom auditions, which has got to be difficult? It's a nightmare. <laughs> it's a nightmare. Um, first of all, Listen, I, I have to say, that in my personal opinion, that when people are looking at our tapes, they do not want to sit and look at 100 actors doing the same 11 pages. Quite frankly, I think most directors and producers and stuff will look and see, first when they do the, we do our slate, uh, hi, I'm Patricia Darbo, I'm fully vexed, I live in Burbank, I'm a U.S. citizen, and I'm not quite five foot three. That's the start of every audition. Um, and sometimes they want a little bit more, but then... 
after the first, you know, first four or five lines, they know if I'm going to be right for this or not. So it's very frustrating to have to memorize stuff and do, you know, 11 pages of dialogue for them and know that they're not even going to look at part of it. Um, I, uh, it's just very frustrating as a performer. I mean, I do think a lot of us like it in the fact that we can have 18 takes because we can erase them off our phone and do them again if we don't <laughs> think it's really good. But again, sometimes we're our own worst judge. So it, it is tough. I, I have to come over to um, Anthony, my publicist, who tapes everything for me because I'm a dinosaur and I don't even know how to turn the phone on half the time. So setting it up and then trying to do something is, is crazy. Um, and listen, I had to do a Skype thing earlier. I couldn't figure out how to do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> my memory is too full of words right now. <laughs> Uh, Ruta Lee is a wonderful friend of our show. I know you've worked with her closely. Can you talk about the, the wonderful things that uh, you do with the Thalians? You know what? I'm so blessed to have been asked to be a part of it. Um, it's something, uh, as an actor, when you're growing up and you're watching all the things the Thalians did back in the 50s and 60s and stuff, and that's, as an actor just coming up, you're like, oh, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that. Um, I'm sorry. I got to meet Debbie with Kevin at an autograph show some uh, some number of years ago. Who, she was wonderfully gracious and stuff. And then, of course, Rita is uh, Ruta. Listen to me, Rita. <laughs> Ruta is a, a dynamo. Um, she um, she knows the, the backwards, the forwards, the ups, the downs, the ins and outs of the Thalians. And this year, we just had a gala where we gave away two hundred thousand dollars to Operation Mend at UCLA which is for our veterans and mental health. And also we've had a number of burn victims that we've helped with that because they come back, they go out there as young men or women, beautiful young men and women, and I'm going to cry, and they come back burned or disfigured or lost a limb or something like that. And if we can do anything to help them, we should. And the Thalians does that. And I'm very happy and very proud to be a member of that. I also understand uh, you're a member of uh, what I think must be a select group known as the Lady Duffers. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes, uh, the Lady Duffers of Burbank. Yes. Um, <laughs> listen, I, I was asked to play in a number of, I was just starting in a number of celebrity golf games and stuff, and I thought, oh, Lord, I better, I better up, my, uh, up my expertise in this. So I joined the Lady Duffers in Burbank, and I've learned a lot about the golf rules. And um, and I know that if I golf at Burbank, everything rolls down towards Burbank. So <laughs> when you're putting, just remember, everything rolls to Burbank. <laughs> now, this uh, is very tough for me to talk with you and be nice to you today because your alma mater has not been a great place for me to visit. I broadcast University of Maine football and three times we've gone down to Statesboro, Georgia, and got kicked in the butt by Georgia Southern. Oh, my word. That is awful. He's awful. <laughs> uh, you know, that was fun and stuff like that. You're in Maine? Is that where you are? Yes. Oh, okay. You're freezing up there. <laughs> oh, we are, yes. <laughs> oh, Lordy. We think 63 is cold. <laughs> Oi. Um, you know what? It was a wonderful experience. Um, I, listen, I, I went to high, my finished because my dad was with the Braves organization. I uh, finished my senior year in Atlanta. I had done my uh, all, most of my young schooling and my first part of high school in Milwaukee. Um, and then when I came down to uh, uh, to Georgia and going to college, I I could have gone to Georgia. I had a couple of scholarships to FSU and Florida State. 
but I just like the small town atmosphere of Statesboro, and that's where we went. So. What's a beautiful campus there. Well, I can't wait to see you back on Days of Our Lives. So, Patrika, one thing I know is that when you're on screen, you have that, uh, whatever that is, that it capability that uh, you can't take your eyes off you. You are so wonderful and create such uh, terrific characters. Can't wait to see what's up your sleeve when you uh, get back to Days starting soon. Let me just tell you, honey, it's going to be a wild ride. <laughs> well, we look forward to it. And, uh, Patrika, thank you so much for visiting with us today. Good luck with the audition as well. And hope you'll come back and visit us again sometime. Anytime you ask, hon, thank you so very much. And uh, thank you to all the fans. That's Patrika Darbo talking about her return to Days of Our Lives and more. All right, thanks to Patrika. Thanks to Josh Carpenter. Thanks to you for joining us this week. Hope to see you next time on Downtown, the podcast brought to you by Cross Insurance.